HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today, writer Anastasia Marks de Salcedo, has a wonderfully curious mind. Her first nonfiction book, The Combat Ready Kitchen, explored the legacy and influence of military research on the foods we eat. I love that book. Her new book, Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse, is just out. It's a novel and slightly jarring argument that will shake up your preconceptions about nutrition, health, and yes, the benefits of exercise. Tough love for couch potatoes coming up. I have spoken with Anastasia before about her book, Combat Ready Kitchen, which was a wonderful book that came out, I think, seven years ago. And it was an incredibly well-researched but very fun-to-read book about the surprising amount of things that we eat that we consider to be normal food have come out of military research and military laboratories. And I think, Anastasia, before we get into your new book, just tell me a little bit about how you were able to come up with the idea to do Combat Ready Kitchen, and why did the military let you in? Well, I'm going to answer the second question first. I really don't know why they let me in. Maybe it was a mistake. But how I came up with it is kind of how I come up with the idea for any piece of writing, which is curiosity. And then I follow the thread of whatever it is that is intriguing me sort of to its natural conclusion. In the case of Combat Ready Kitchen, I became curious about some of the foods that I was uh, using in my children's lunches for school. And I realized that they tended to have this rather long shelf life. And so after I had sent them off, I began to do research on that. And at the time, I was very interested in what I call industrial food. 
and the food science of that. And I took a deep dive into all the items, bread and cheese and cold cuts and energy bars. And I found this reference to what to me was an obscure U.S. Army base, the Natick Soldier System Center, which turned out to be located just about 15 minutes from my house. They had funded some of the research on extended shelf life for two of the items in uh, my kids' lunchbox, the bread and the cold cuts. And I found, I just was, why the hell is the army doing food science research? And that led me down the rabbit hole to that book. So your curiosity led you to things. I remember when I read the book, I had always heard the tang, that wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. orange powder came from the military, came from maybe the moon launch or way long before the moon launch. But I was surprised that granola bars and things like that were a military-inspired invention. What else did you find that would surprise us that came from the military and made it into the center of what we eat? Oh, goodness. Well, in the book, I have a chapter where I give a supermarket tour and I go through the different sections and put items in. And then at the end, I look back and I estimate that if I removed every item that had a military origin or influence, that the grocery store would be 50% empty. Hmm. And I stand by that. <laughs> at least 50% empty because I think I really only scratched the surface of it. The book took me three years to write. So if I kind of going back to that tour idea, starting in the produce section, things that might surprise you would be those little bags of salad and greens. The mix of gases that's there to preserve the greens was actually something that was developed cooperatively between the military and Whirlpool, which you produces mean refrigerators. Those things that um, I buy, like cut up salad, and it stays fresh for like years in my refrigerator. Yeah. No, and it doesn't say not years. <laughs> I would not definitely not okay, eat that salad a week, after at least. a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> um, but weeks, yeah. yes. And that is extended with something called modified atmosphere packaging. And that whole concept was developed again in, with this in this cooperation with the military to send uh, fresh vegetables to Vietnam hmm. for soldiers. So that starts there. You can go through, you know, even if you go into the meat section, it doesn't sound like an innovation now, but actually cutting up the or slaughtering animals and then cutting them up at the point of origin and then boxing the cuts according to the cuts rather than shipping sides of beef. That that was actually a military origin oh. during World War One. <laughs> and to think about it, it saved them a lot of weight in terms of, of shipping and of course canning. You brought up the energy bar. That's a technology called the an intermediate moisture food, something that was Researched by MIT, as a matter of fact, for the Natick Center and is a way um, to preserve bakery products and keep them sort of moist and chewy. And that, that really has spawned whole categories of food, you know, from, from cookies and so forth to all sorts of snack foods. Um, you have something called high pressure processing, which was a, uh, a cold food preservation technique developed during the 1990s. This was done in these giant sort of cooperative agreements that have been done among the military, universities, and uh, large food conglomerates. Mm. 
And high pressure processing is a way to preserve food with pressure. So you don't need any preservatives. And working together, all these players came up with this technique and the technique then was commercialized. It's used in things if you've ever noticed, sort of preservative free uh, deli meats offered by Hormel that are in, in the supermarket. Those are done, preserved with high pressure processing. You can look in the spice rack and many spices are actually sterilized and preserved using nuclear energy. And that was a technique that was developed after World War II <laughs> and during the exploration of the uses of atomic energy and saying, okay, well, maybe we can use them to preserve food. They actually hoped that it would be something that could be used widely and even tried to use it with meat. But consumers never cottoned up to the idea, especially because you had those little radioactive symbols on the packaging. <laughs> um, but it is used in spices. So on and on and on, basically. Did you come to this research from a background in business or science or journalism or food? Sort of all of the above. Okay. <laughs> in the case of Combat Ready Kitchen, I had really started out as a food writer, but as I had mentioned, I'd become increasingly interested in what I had started to call industrial food and, and still call industrial food and nobody else does, <laughs> which is what everybody else would call processed food. What was interesting to me about it was sort of the combination or the intersection of food, science, business, and culture. Mm -hmm. So I had done, you know, you know, different pieces on things as diverse as pizza to Annie's mac and cheese to food safety biology. So I'd kind of been moving into that topic area. And then after I wrote Combat Ready Kitchen, I continued to be sort of focusing on the processed food, but I started to be look at the public health claims about how it was contributing to the obesity epidemic and mm -hmm lifestyle illnesses. I then started to work on, a, on another book, which is now going to be published, which is called In Defense of Processed Food. And there I kind of take a four-part argument. The first is... In uh, let me just restate that. In defense of processed food. <laughs> yes, in defense. In defense. And the reference is um, what it sounds like. So the, there's a, a four-part argument there from a food science point of view, then a feminist, economic, and then public health. And then the public health piece, I sort of ended up in this deep dive. And as I think sometimes happens for a nonfiction author, at least, <laughs> that whole chapter became so voluminous that it became its own book. Its own book. And, and that, that book became my new one, which is Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse. So I love your title. Eat like a pig, which of course I would like to do. Run like a horse, which I would aspire to do as well. Tell us about the book. If I ask you the classic elevator question, what is the central thesis of the book? The central thesis of the book is that we should be focusing far more on physical activity than diet to be healthy. Hmm. How's that for quick? Are you saying that diet doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that physical activity matters more. 
And then you ask, well, why should we pit diet against physical activity? Why not do everything? Which I think it tends to be sort of the standard response. You know, people say, oh, you know, you've got to eat right and you should exercise and you should sleep and blah, blah, blah. My answer to that is, well, you know what? We have limited time. Many of us feel very busy and we make choices based on what we think are the priorities. I think that most people right now feel that diet is a priority. So they're making choices about how to spend their time. They're thinking about diets. They're uh, following certain kinds of diets require a fair amount of attention. They're shopping for foods, preparing foods. That takes a lot of time. And so what I'm saying is if, for example, you knew that physical activity contributed which I think actually it may, 80% to your good health and diet is only 20. Maybe you'd want to take some of that time and instead spend it being physically active. Um, at top level, how do you back up that contention? Like a, an 80-20 split that diet... Okay, that- well, that's actually something quite new. There was a recent study which came out of Australia comparing exercise and diet and the headlines of this were somewhat misleading because they said, well, you, you can't outrun a bad diet, which is true, but you can almost outrun a bad diet. But what much of the media cover didn't actually talk about was the fact that it clearly showed that physical activity contributed far more to good health than a good diet. So for example, say following the very best diet, people were able to reduce their all-cause mortality by 5%. But by doing a vigorous physical activity, they were able to reduce it by 15 to 20%. Can you give us sort of a ballpark of what does vigorous, for an adult, what does a vigorous physical activity look like on a weekly basis or daily basis? That's a great question. And I run four miles a day. However, I am doing more than I need to. And I think that vigorous physical activity is one that elevates your heart so that it is difficult to carry on a conversation. You get warm and probably start to sweat. Those are good signs. And those are actually signs that your metabolism has increased and some really good things are happening to your body. So that's one way you can determine if something is a vigorous physical activity. Typically, it'd be running, jogging. I think you can do a very fast walk, but walking might not get into that category, be in the moderate category. You could do, um, you know, cycling in the gym or treadmill. But as long as you're getting your heart rate up for an extended period of time, let's say 15, 20 minutes a day, that's probably good enough. Mm. So it's not a huge commitment, but it is, I think it's really vital that you get into that category and above the moderate physical activity to get some of the incredible benefits of exercise, which um, are detailed in the book. Well, then I suppose I should stop making fun of my daughter who is basically married to her Peloton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, any way you can get that is good. On the other hand, I think there is a base level that gets you into the much healthier category. And then on top of that, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference. So, you know, even my four miles a day is probably a little bit more than I need to do. Mm. I was doing two and a half for quite a while. And I think that that's a fine level of mileage. But it's interesting. So you're comparing diet and exercise. And if I think of a sort of a pie chart that is the health that my body can control, 
not my genetics, not, you know, being hit by a car, not every other thing. You're saying that 80% of the things that can happen to me to keep me healthy have to do with how much I move and at what rate. And the other 20% of the time I can eat Oreo cookies and it really wouldn't matter. But I know you're not saying that. But in the book, how, how yeah. detailed do you get? That study was actually one of the first times scientists had pit the two against each other. So I was really delighted to see that. In my book, I cite a scientist who looks at fatness versus fitness, Mm -hmm. Uh, a guy named Glenn uh, Gaser at Arizona State University. He did uh, meta-analysis when you get a whole bunch of studies that other scientists have done and based on criteria to make sure that they're sound, and then you do an analysis of all their data. And what he found is that within all of the BMI categories, normal weight, overweight, and obese, if you broke people down into fit and unfit, the fit people had lower mortality than the unfit people in all those categories. And in fact, the difference between fit normal weight and fit obese was not that great. So in other words, you can be, you can be fat and healthy. <laughs> but you have to start running. I think we have aspirational fitness. I don't think we have actual fitness yet. But do you cover in the book a lot of this new exercise science? When we come back, we'll ask Anastasia to tell us more about how she compares the impact of exercise versus the impact of diet on long-term health. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. And we are back with author Anastasia Marx de Salcedo, author of Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse. That's one side of it. Fit people in all categories are healthier. So this is something that we should embrace and also focus on the fitness, not on the weight loss. Mm. I'm not against weight loss if you're in one of those categories. And I personally tend to prefer to keep, you know, in a certain range because I feel, for one thing, it's easier to run, (laughs) I find. And then sort of as a practical matter, once people become physically active, and I can even cite my own 18-year-old daughter who's been running, 
recently she used to be a gymnast and and, and started to pick that up and she commented to me you know running makes me want to eat a better diet it makes me want to be healthier and I said yeah that that's true it's actually true for most people is it once you start being physically active it creates it elevates your mood it reduces stress and people and you feel more comfortable in your body people actually will be more inclined to make other adaptations that make them healthier overall I I hear you I remember once I was sitting next to a woman on an airplane and it turned out that she was one of the U.S. Olympic volleyball champions, and she had brought her lunch. I mean, most people pick up a sandwich or a salad at the airport. She had hard-boiled eggs. She had roast beef. She had blanched green beans. She had carrot sticks. It was nuts, cheese, everything, every kind of food. And I said, that's impressive. And she said, well, you know, I'm an athlete, and if I want to be a good athlete, I have to basically feed the machine. Yeah, and yeah. I thought that was really kind of fascinating. Plus, she was very tall. She was very tall. But <laughs> oh yeah, we have a phrase that we say all the time, which is that food is medicine. Are you saying that exercise is medicine? How do you compare those two thoughts? I am saying that exercise is medicine, and I kind of like to think about it just as sort of a silly image of, you know, if food were medicine, then we would be taking sort of food molecules and turning those into pills and injections and treating ourselves when we're sick. But we don't do that. But what we do do is pharmaceutical companies often synthesize molecules that are very similar to the molecules that are produced by the body after physical activity, especially vigorous physical activity, and or that act on the same pathways. And those molecules do things like relieve pain, really? um, elevate mood, and very importantly, reduce inflammation. And one of the things that is the point of the book is not so much this whole idea of the fatness versus fitness, that's sort of the, the jumping off point. The real point is that physical activity has so many different cellular and molecular benefits. It creates all these new um, you know, substances, these molecules that then have a beneficial effect on your body. And I go through just a handful of them in the book. Everything from exercise opens up a second pathway for glucose to enter your skeletal muscle cells. So hmm. you don't need insulin. Hmm. So somebody totally. with, yes. So somebody with diabetes, glucose can get in their cells without insulin that way if they're physically active. So exercise, and that may be one of the reasons why exercise has been known almost since the beginning of the discovery of diabetes that physical activity seemed to prevent and control it. Hmm. And that is indeed true. I assume you're talking about type 2 diabetes primarily. Yes, yeah. type 2. But it can even help with type 1. It's very important for people with type 1 diabetes to, to exercise as well. And that same second pathway for glucose to get into their cells, is also it also opens up for them. So that's one impact. Another impact is that in your muscle cell, you have mitochondria, what are called the powerhouses of the cell that create the energy that you use. And exercise create sort of strengthens and increases those mitochondria so they're really robust and that's a pattern of development that's associated with longer lifespans and better quality life 
It also increases the amount of what's called spare capacity for your mitochondria. It basically charging the battery beyond what you would be able to do otherwise. And then you have all these anti-inflammatory impacts, which are the creation of these new molecules. Sometimes these are to deal with heat stress and other stresses from the activity. But the net impact is that after you're vigorously physically active, they're kind of floating around in your system and they're dealing with any kind of inflammation. So it's not just after you've exercised, then they attack, thinking in my case, um, because one of the reasons that I'm such a... a dedicated runner is because I have MS, that they are reducing inflammation in my body on a daily basis, and it keeps me from getting exacerbations. How long have you had MS? I have had MS for, I think, about almost 30 years. And exercise has been one of your management skills. Yeah. In fact, the book itself is really a exploration of what is going on with me because I, as I said, I was diagnosed um, almost 30 years ago and I had quite severe attacks in the first few years. They were kind of stroke-like. I lost sensation and strength on one side of my body. And then a few years later on the other side, a couple of years later, I had some exacerbations in my legs, you know, with weakness and paresthesia, etc. And then in about 10 years into it, during a pregnancy <laughs> my, with my middle daughter, I had, I had been swimming, but not swimming sort of at the rate of for accelerating my heart a great deal. During an episode of projectile vomiting, I threw out a shoulder, so I had Pregnancy to... Pregnancy is so fun. <laughs> I yeah. know. I was holding myself on the counter and just twisted it. So then I had to find a new activity, and I started running. After that... I never had another MS attack. That's incredible. And that was 20 years ago. <laughs> and I don't, and so I, I have to say that at first I was just like, oh, okay, um, something good is happening, but I don't really want to look too hard because maybe I'll jinx it. You know, there's sort of this feeling of, you know, if it's not broke, uh, don't fix it. But eventually I began, and as I became more confident that I my MS was not going to advance, I became more interested in trying to understand what was happening. And I will say that my neurologist also encouraged me in the exercise route. And he said, well, there's at certain points we discussed some of the treatments out there. And he said, and I told him I prefer not to if I, because I wasn't progressing very fast. And he said, well, you know, exercise, there's new evidence that shows that exercise is maybe as protective as some of the interferon-based therapies we have. So... Fascinating. Well, uh, I've read two chapters in the book, but I'm going to read more. And as um, as you may know, I have some experience with MS. My husband has MS. I wish the book had come out 20 years ago when he could still have done these things. But we'll see what we can do. But there are many take-homes from this book. It's a wonderful new book, and it brings a certain kind of scientific sensitivity to issues that are in one's own control, which to me is... <sighs> It's empowering. It's an empowering book to read. So I thank you so much. And let me just ask you, what is your best take-home advice for people from eat like a pig, run like a horse? It is, uh, you should create an exercise diet, which is every day you need to plan 
to make sure that you have a one, at least one hearty meal of aerobic exercise, that's heart rate elevating exercise, and then supplement with a variety of other exercise foods that will you know, work on strength and balance and stretching, and find ways to incorporate exercise into your life that are pleasurable and you know, substitute a walk with a friend for sitting down for a coffee and a donut or whatever. Keep on moving and keep on moving keep hard. Keep on moving. Well, exactly. thank you so much. And the book is available and out now in in hardcover, but it, it's also downloadable on on Amazon on Kindle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on Kindle. It's on in anywhere on any online bookseller. You can either get the ebook or you can get the hardcover. Anastasia, thank you so much. And for everybody, the idea that you could eat like a pig if you run like a horse, very, very exciting. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Best, best of luck Thank with this. Thank you very much, Thank Lisa. you. Bye. Thank you, Anastasia. I'll be planning my exercise snack as soon as I can get off my couch. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.